Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Mark 8, 22 to 30? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christina. I think I set myself up for failure last week by saying this was part two. So, Allison, I'm sorry about that. Um, this will be... I mentioned when, I, when we did communion last week um, that it would be... What, what word did I say? Pastoral malpractice to preach a sermon like I did last week, very often it's a lot of law and not a lot of grace. Um, but that's why we have the table in every service, <laughs> um, to remind us of the grace. And this week we're going to focus on, uh, this will be more of a gospel-centered message uh, than last week probably felt to us. Let's pray and then we'll jump into these verses. Lord, we ask, as we do every week when we come to your word, when we gather, that you would open our eyes, uh, the eyes of our heart, that we would see, uh, as this blind man did, that we would see everything clearly. We ask that you would uh, enlighten us, that your spirit, that you're um, the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, and the person of the Father, would touch our hearts and our eyes and, and make us see. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're wrapping up here the first half of the book of Mark. The middle of chapter 8, as I mentioned last week, is this pivot point in the story. And it centers around maybe one of the most famous lines in Scripture outside of John 3.16. And that is this question that Jesus asked in verse 29, directed at Peter, where he says, Who do you say that I am? One of you who knew I was preaching this text uh, this week sent me a picture of uh, the display, the magazine display rack at the grocery store, I assume, and it had a Life magazine in it. And the Life magazine, this has been coming out every year for a number of years, but it's a Life magazine book, and on the, pic on the front is a picture of Jesus, and in big letters underneath the picture of Jesus it says, who do you say that I am? It goes, this, this question goes to the very heart of what Jesus is about and why he came and so the whole first part of this story of Mark, as Mark is retelling it, as Peter, through Mark, is retelling it to us, is pointing towards this moment in the story. And after this moment, Jesus shifts and he pivots, and there's a different, seemingly a different purpose and a, a different goal, a different way that he's going about his ministry. But this question, who do you say that I am, is the central question of Christian faith. 
is the central question of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in this room, of what it means to understand or encounter Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And that's what Jesus asks Peter here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all structure their entire gospels around this moment in the story where there's all this stuff happening in Galilee and Jesus is doing all these miracles and engaging with all these people. And then he gets to this moment at Caesarea Philippi and he looks at the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks back at him and he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus goes, okay, now we can move on. And he goes towards Jerusalem and he does um, this movement towards the cross. But to get to that question, to understand the context here, I want to go back to last week real quick. Because in last week's verses, we have this episode in the boat where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod and that's what we talked about last week and right after he does that they start arguing about who forgot to bring bread remember there's this argument happening and then Jesus begins to ask them these questions right and Jesus is deeply frustrated right you can hear this here's these questions let me read them to you he goes why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? He's deeply, deeply frustrated. And he he characterizes his frustration and their problem with this idea of blindness. You have eyes, but you can't see. Do you not understand? Remember a few uh, chapters ago, we looked at this idea of what it means to listen and see is not just like, hey, look at what I'm doing or listen to my words, but like understand, grasp in your heart. And so this inability that they have to grasp what Jesus is talking about, Jesus calls blindness. And so what is it that they can't see? What, what, is, what are they blind to? What is Jesus so frustrated about? And if we've been reading Mark carefully, there's been some hints all along. Remember the very first verse of Mark, Mark 1.1 says, he introduces that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He identifies Jesus in the very first verse. And then he kind of steps back and he doesn't do a lot of editorial commenting, but he tells all these stories. And there's all these stories kind of woven in that have this idea about who is Jesus. In in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the people see him talking and they say, who speaks like this? Who who can forgive sins but God himself? And it's this question of who? Who is this man? What is he doing and who is he? And then in the boat in Mark 4, the disciples see Jesus calm the storm and say, who is this? Who, even the wind and the, and the seas obey him. Who is this person? In chapter 6, we see Herod, right, wrestling with this, like some say he's this person, and some say he's Elijah, and some say he's John the Baptist reincarnated. And Herod is wrestling with who, who is this person that we are engaging with. And then in chapter 6 again, they say, where did, he, where did this man get his power, and where does he, where does he have this wisdom, and How does he do these mighty works? And behind those questions is this question of who is Jesus? Who who is this person that we're dealing with? And I think, I suspect that Peter and Mark are reflecting on their journey with Jesus, looking through all of these episodes, 
And there's this crescendo of inability to see that has happened throughout the whole book. You have his family. We went over this last week. His family rejects him, and the leaders reject him, and the townspeople reject him, and all. Even now, his own disciples can't see. And there's just this overwhelming crescendo of inability to see who Jesus is. And that's the whole book of Mark. And really, when you get down to it, the whole scripture characterizes our primary problem as an inability to see who Jesus is. Spiritual blindness. It's an inability to see and perceive and grasp the person and work of Jesus. That's the problem that all the people that Jesus encounters counter throughout this entire book have. They have an inability to see and perceive who Jesus is. There's only one group of people, not even people, there's only one group of beings that have identified Jesus properly up till this point in the story, and that's the demons. No one else has identified him at all. Like the demons are like, hey, we know you. And he's like, don't, 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 right? Because people are not going to understand if you say it. They're not going to grasp it, so don't say it. And this is the crisis that drives the entire plot of the story of the gospel forward, is who is this person? What is he doing here, and who is his, who is he? And the blindness to that, the opposite of that blindness is faith in Jesus, We talk about faith being the center of our response to Christ. Being blind to Jesus is the opposite of faith. Believing in who he is and what he came to do is the opposite of being blind. Blindness is the opposite of faith. Spiritual blindness and faith, opposites of one another. And the disciples' problem and all these people who couldn't see who Jesus was, that's the same problem that we have. We walk through our lives with this spiritual blindness. It's why I think we read these stories and it's easy to identify with these characters. I just put myself in that story last week in the boat and Jesus is like, do you not understand? Like, what do you want me to understand? I don't get it. Half the time we like wake up in the morning and you're reading the scripture and you're like, I don't understand this. I don't get it. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to respond. I feel like I have, but I don't. We we, we walk through life with with this often sense of blindness. Whether you've never been a Christian at all, and you just heard about Jesus, whether you're picking up the Life magazine off the rack, you know, on the way out, and you're like, who's this person? I've never heard of this guy. Or you've been a Christian for 50 years. We wrestle with this inability to believe, inability to see and perceive clearly. It's like I wear contacts. I'm embarrassed to even tell you what my eyesight is without my contacts in. Right? But there's a lot of sense in which I feel like half the time I'm spiritually without my contacts. Like I see things, but I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. It's just like the blind man, right? I, I see trees walking around. I see what I think I'm supposed to see, but I'm not sure if that's right. And there's this sense that we all live in this, in this kind of context of, of blindness. And this blindness is our primary problem. And we, we tend to get sidetracked on other problems. We think our problems are moral or relational we think our problems are political. We, we have all these other problems that we, that we focus on, but when we really stop and read the scriptures, we see that our primary problem, the root of all of those other problems, is this inability to see and understand the person and work of Jesus. And so that's where we left ourselves last week. Right? We looked at one reason why we have this blindness is because we're overwhelmed and drawn into this posture towards power. But so this is, this is where the disciples are. They can't see. Jesus is deeply frustrated That's where we are. So let's fast forward. Can we go to verse 27? Just remember, this is verse 21. Jesus says, do you not yet understand? 
And in verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is a little village north of the Sea of Galilee. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, kind of like back in chapter 6 with Herod, they, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some say the prophets. Like, people do have, Jesus, people have no idea who you are. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, shockingly, right? If you follow this story, this is a shocking thing. He says, you are the Christ. And you're like, wait a minute, time out. Like six, six minutes ago, Jesus is yelling at Peter for not being able to understand do you not understand? And here he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ. How does Peter go from verse 21, do you not yet understand, to verse 29 where he's like, you are the Christ. And that answer changes the whole trajectory of Jesus' ministry because Peter gets it right. How did Peter go from being blind to having faith in Jesus? How did that happen? If you've been following Mark, you know Mark does this all the time, right? Because what's in between these two stories? Another story that explains the outside stories. Like the story of the blind man is inserted here in the text to interpret and help us interpret what is happening with the disciples and what is happening with Peter. Right? Mark strategically places this story here. It's a part of a larger unit. There's another story of a blind man in later on in chapter 11, and those two stories form a bracket with a bunch of stuff in between that we'll look at when we continue our Mark series later on. But right now, this story has this relationship because the problem in the last week's text is that the disciples are blind. And then we get into this story where eight different Greek words for seeing are used. There's nine occurrences of the word seeing they all look the same to us, but in Greek, it's nine different words for being able to see. And Mark's just like, in the Greek, it's actually kind of amazing. Like, I'm like, I didn't even know there were that many words. Like, how do you find another word for seeing? He's like blaring, hey, this is about seeing. This is about seeing. Like, pay attention to this. This connects to what's going on with the, with the disciples. And I want to just give us three, as for the rest of this time, three ways in which this story interprets what happened to Peter and what happens to us. Three ways in which the story of the blind man, Jesus healing the blind man, interprets our own spiritual blindness. Here's the first one. Is that faith, which remember is the opposite of blindness, faith is possible. And if you're reading Mark up till this point, you're like, what's the point? Like Jesus has done miracles, he's done signs, he's done feedings, he's done teachings. Even his own disciples don't get it. And you're just in this point where like, is Jesus' mission even working? And this story helps us understand that faith is possible, that going from being blind to seeing is possible, that Jesus, in healing the blind man, is giving a, another sign to say, I am here to actually solve the problem that you have, which is spiritual blindness, that it's possible that he was Jesus didn't come to just leave his disciples be like okay you can't figure it out I'm out of here he's like I'm going to intervene and what that means for us is that we ought to bring into our lives and into our relationships with others a sense of optimism about the possibility of faith we look around the world 
You look at your own relationships, it's very easy to be incredibly pessimistic about the possibility that people will come to faith. That people will come to see and understand Jesus. But this little story teaches us, and I think, I think Mark and Peter may have thought back later like we should have, we should have understood what he was trying to tell us. <laughs> when he healed the blind man, we should have seen ourselves in it. We should have seen other people where it's possible that blindness, this inability to see and understand Jesus, it's possible for it to be healed, in which we should bring this optimism into everywhere that we go. I mean, if we, don't, if we can't have optimism about people coming to faith, why are we here? We should just pack up and go home. Like the reason we're here is because we believe that not only ourselves but others can actually receive sight, can see the beauty of the King, of Jesus and all that he has done. So the question is, who, who are in your life are you tempted to be pessimistic about? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Who, who is it that you're tempted to just be like, it's over for this person. There's no way that they can come to see clearly. And Jesus says, this man who's completely blind at the end of the story, he sees clearly. Why? Because I can heal spiritual blindness. So the first way it helps us interpret our lives and the disciples' story is that faith is possible. Like it's the, it's the first major sign here in the story of Mark that things are headed in a good direction. <laughs> like it's, we've been like on this downward spiral and now all of a sudden it's like, no, I'm here to actually do something about that. Here's the second thing. Faith is possible, but faith also requires an act of God. People do not get healed of blindness on their own. There's nothing that any person who is blind can do to fix or save or open their own eyes. It's beautiful, and Matthew, Matthew records the same story, and he says, P- Jesus asked Peter the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? So apparently he said more than just you're the Messiah. He actually understood in this moment that he was the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew clarifies what Mark leaves implied by the story, which is that Peter didn't just all of a sudden realize this on his own, that there is an act of God working on his disciples, that the power of God was in their relationships where Jesus was not just an object to their senses, but he was reaching in to their spiritual eyes and putting spit and mud on their eyes in order to allow them to be able to say when he asked them, who do you say that I am? It's like, now I see, you are the Christ. One of my commentators that I've been using a lot said this, and I really like the way he said it, but he said, they, the disciples, are not going to be able to resolve the mystery of faith on their own. We say this during communion every week. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's a mystery. We're talking about somebody who was raised from the dead, and now is gone and will return. I mean, there's, there's no way to perceive that except by an act of God. They will not resolve the mystery of faith on their own. Or we're going to sing after this amazing grace. Right, this famous song, we know this. I once was blind, but now I see. 
It's the, the, the power of God is the answer to that question. I used to teach this session at, at camp that we worked at. I, I called it the foolishness of God. And it was based on 1 Corinthians where it says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And our camp was very much oriented towards teaching apologetics and worldviews. And so we had all these teenagers that would come um, and they'd spend a week learning about different worldviews and apologetics and, and getting their heads like this big about how good they were at understanding the world. And we'd send them out on Wednesday afternoons to do street evangelism, hopefully to help rub off a little of those edges because you, you have this big head as a 14-year-old about all that you know about the Bible and about the world and you meet a, you know, a cranky old 70-year-old 70, 70 PhD in philosophy and he just destroys you as an atheist. You know, he's, you, you, they can't, they try, would try to talk and argue these people into being Christians and the 70-year-old atheist philosopher would just be like, run along. <laughs> It kind of rubs off, rubs off a little bit. But towards the end of the week, I would often teach this session where I walked through the reality that the cross is foolishness, right? And I would get to the end of the session, I'd be like, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why have you responded to the gospel? And so many of us want in so much in our being to make that response about us. Because I'm smarter than my neighbor who hasn't. Because I'm whatever. I, I understand the world better. Like there, there is no human explanation for why you responded to the gospel. You responded because all of a sudden your eyes were open and you saw it, right? Responding to, to Jesus is there's this sight thing to it where you, like, you don't decide to see something, you just see it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And there it is. And that's Peter. He's like, I, oh, okay, you're the Christ. I, I see that now. I'm sorry. Right? Like he, he was blind and now he sees and that's by an act of God. And the blindness, spiritual blindness, can't be cured by evidence or arguments or signs. And so a few things that that means for us, just as we think about walking through our life, responding to Jesus, a few things that, that don't work here, things that we like. <laughs> Mechanisms don't work to get people to faith, to get ourselves to faith. We live in a mechanistic society we want to make disciples. We want to put disciples, we want to put non-disciples in this end of the machine and push the green button and wait five minutes and then out comes a disciple. Like we, we, want to pro, we want process, we want format, we want scope and sequence, we want machinery and curriculum that will make people understand the gospel, make them respond to Jesus. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean those are bad things, which those are not the things that bring someone to faith. Church hospitality and evangelism programs and arguments and debates, and these things do not bring people to see. Arguing with a, dead, a blind man about what he can or cannot see is not helpful, right? If there's some blind person and you're like, there's a tree right there, and they're like, I can't see it. Like, I want you to believe it. Like, I can't see it. A blind person cannot see until they have received sight by a supernatural act of God. It also means marketing doesn't work. This is... Church favorite right now. If you just market it right on social media, if you just market your sermon series right, if you had anybody besides the lead pastor designing the sermon series graphic, it would be way better. And that's true, but it wouldn't make anybody see Jesus, right? Like ultimately, our sermon graphics don't matter. They're fine, and they matter at like this level, but 
Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like we, but we get sucked into this mentality that if we, just, if we just say the right thing, if we just offer the gospel in the right way, if we just make it sound good enough that people will respond, like that doesn't work. There's only one way that someone who is blind can see, and that's by a supernatural act of God. It's actual, personal touch encounter with Jesus. That's what this, right? The, Jesus grabs him by the hand and he leads him out and he touches him. There's this touch encounter with Jesus. And that can happen in a ton of different ways, but that's what we're after. And if what we're trying to do isn't that at its core, then we're wasting our time. Bringing people into relational encounters with Jesus. We use this lemon I would say all the time. We didn't make it up, but the idea of you win, what you win them with is what you win them to. If we win someone to our church or to our community group or to our neighborhood or to Jesus by offering them cotton candy, they've actually been won to cotton candy, not to Jesus. It's not hard to get people into a room, right, and call it church. That's not hard. You just offer cotton candy. It works like a charm all over our city and all over our country. That's not, that's not bringing people to see Jesus because what we're bringing them into the room with is not Jesus. A more specific one, just as we think about our lives, many of us are in this space well, all of us are in this space in some way or another. But if mechanisms don't work and marketing doesn't work, it also means that parenting doesn't work. Right? It's just a sort of a sidebar application. Right? Parents, we want to manufacture disciples of Jesus. That's what we try to do. We hope that as long as we do the right thing, as long as we bring our kids here and say this right thing, and we rely on our parenting to bring our children to a knowledge of Jesus, and the reality is that the only way that our children will come to know Jesus is if they have a touch encounter with Jesus. And so our parenting needs to be oriented not around manufacturing a disciple, but around bringing our children to Jesus and letting him touch them. And that can mean a lot of different things, but we have to change the way that we think about parenting because we're, we oftentimes find ourselves trying to manufacture the blindness out of our kids. It doesn't work. What does work is back to our spiritual formation series, facilitating encounters with Jesus, personal relational encounters with the person of Jesus. Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. We interact with him personally. If we remove the personal out of it, it ceases to be God and it starts to be some other kind of thing. Jesus is a person. We have to interact with him personally. He has to touch us personally in order for us to have our eyes opened. So faith is possible and faith requires an act of God. But there's a, a, th a third thing that is specific to this story that is important for us to understand in this moment. And that is this, that faith is a process. We don't like this one. We've been taught otherwise, I think. It's the only healing in the whole book of Mark that occurs in two, two stages. Jesus puts the mud on the man's eyes and he says what do you see which mirrors his questions to the disciples another link to that story what did you see and he goes I see I see people but they look like trees I, I, see, I see something but it's not what I'm expecting and then Jesus he touches him again and then he can see clearly it's funny because Peter says you are the Christ 
And about 10 verses later, Jesus says, the Christ is going to die. And Peter's like, no. And you know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. Okay, Peter saw, but he still needed to be cured again. Later in chapter 9 of Mark, there's a father who is coming to Jesus to ask for his child to be healed. And he says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith in Jesus is not a yes or no question. We, sometimes we operate like it is. We think we're like sorting. This person is a Christian. This person's not. This person believes. This person doesn't. That's just not how it works. The world is not clean enough for that. Right? Faith is this process whereby we encounter Jesus repeatedly and he slowly allows us to see clearly. It's a day-by-day process of asking Jesus to touch us and heal our blindness. This apathy or over-contentedness with where we are is deadly for our faith because spiritual blindness can seep back in. There's a theological sense in which once we receive the Spirit of God, we don't, we don't lose the Spirit of God. But there's also the day-by-day sense where spiritual blindness is very much on us and there's this need for us who have responded to Jesus to continue to respond, who have been touched by Jesus, who have been able to see and look and come into a room and speak with one another and say, Jesus is the Christ, to continue to go back to Jesus and ask him to make it clear what that means to submit ourselves to not just the reality of him as the Messiah and the Christ, but also as the one who calls us in the very next verse to take up our cross. We're never done being healed from our blindness. Faith, believing, being healed of this problem that we have of seeing and understanding Jesus is a lifelong thing that we we submit ourselves to every day. Where where does Jesus need to heal your blindness? What blindnesses do you have about the person or work of Jesus? You know, the funny thing about blindness is that you don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You also don't see what you don't see. So this is why you have to be in spiritual community in order to to be healed by Jesus. Because you get we get in our corners and we don't see what we don't see. We need other people to be the hand of Jesus to touch our eyes. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Why do you believe in Jesus? I, I was blind and now I see. I, I don't know. <laughs> I see that he's the Messiah, son of the living God. I don't know why. I don't know how. I just know that I was blind and now I see. Praise God for that. Is now not the time to comment on the irony of Amazing Grace being sung on the steps of the Capitol last week. Friends, faith is possible. It requires an act of God, and it's a lifelong process of believing. Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. The day-by-day experience of having our eyes open to the glory and the beauty of Jesus. That's what Mark is about. That's what the book of Mark is about. And now that the disciples see that, the book takes a turn and Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and begins to tell them the part of the story that that they don't understand yet. And that is that 
the Messiah will suffer, and so will you. So next time we take up Mark, we'll take up what it looks like for us to be suffering alongside Jesus, but for now, let's remember that Jesus is the Christ, that faith is possible, and that he does indeed heal of our spiritual blindness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Christ to be the Messiah, to be the one who heals blindness. We pray that you would open our eyes, that light would flood in, that when we don't see that we would uh, be willing to admit that and go uh, run to you and ask for your healing hand on us. Let us encounter you personally, regularly, that we would see things clearly the way this blind man did. We pray it for your glory and uh, because of your grace. Amen.